Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 87. My name is Christopher Luft, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be telling the story behind the hack that took down the Colonial Pipeline back in 2021. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this show, Lima Charlie. My name is Maxim Lamet Brassard, and I'm the founder of Lima Charlie, I'm the company behind the SecOps Cloud Platform. Cybersecurity tools today need to evolve from the one-size-fits-all silos into a modern tool set to adapt to the specific needs that you have. The SecOps Cloud Platform works by providing you with full access to the underlying security tools and infrastructure. Everything's on demand with no minimums, no contracts. It's an approach that's really like AWS has done in IT. We offer a full-featured free tiers, no credit cards, no contracts, nothing. Get on the platform today, deploy an EDR, start ingesting logs, build a product, start an MDR, an MSSP, whatever you can imagine. We're making security flexible so you can build what's possible. You can learn more or get started for free at limacharlie.io. These days, there isn't much that binds Americans together from the North and South. Your average New Yorker probably has more in common with someone from London or Toronto than Omaha or Mobile. The laws and politics in these states vary significantly, and studies show that the movements of people, particularly after COVID, are only exacerbating the divides that make this so. But there is at least one thing connecting Baltimore and Baton Rouge. Washington, and Birmingham. In the 1960s, as the country was radically shifting politically and demographically, in infrastructure and sheer population size, three major oil companies came together to begin construction of a historic pipeline called Colonial. Today, it's still privately owned by some of the biggest oil industry organizations around. Colonial covers 5,500 miles from New Jersey to Texas, passing through each state along the eastern ridge of the Appalachian Mountains. Since four out of every five Americans live in America's eastern half, and two out of every five on its east coast alone, the pipeline running through it is more significant than any other in the country. It, alone, is responsible for about 45% of the fuel supply used by hundreds of millions of American citizens and companies every day. The Colonial Pipeline used to be one of those overlooked, easily taken for granted aspects of our society, without which daily life in America simply slows to a halt. And what nobody seems to have understood before May of 2021 was that, in some sense, the entire thing rested on one singular password. A password that should have been protected for an account that shouldn't have existed. On April 29th, 2021, a malicious agent took advantage of this point in Colonial's IT infrastructure where it was weakest. It it basically came out that um, they had worked with an initial access broker. Casey Ellis, founder and CTO at Bug Crowd. What an initial access broker or IAB is, is, is almost like a, you know, an interesting thing that's happened in, in the cyber criminal industry over the past three or four years is it's kind of taken a, taken a leaf from Silicon Valley's playbook and, and stratified into these kind of you know, crime as a service like layers. 
IABs are the middlemen of the cybercrime underground, providing a kind of access as a service for any misdeeds you so choose. Basically what they do is they, they opportunistically go out and look for initial access opportunities into whatever they can find. You know, sometimes like some groups work in a targeted way, others are just purely opportunistic and they make those initial access vectors available in a marketplace. And then basically, you know, whoever, whoever's looking to, uh, to do a particular type of intrusion can pick up, you know, uh, credentials for, for RDP, you know, um, tokens for, for a web application, um, if they want to get into Slack and pilfer around and try to get credentials out of that, they can get Slack tokens. There's all sorts of different things that are available in that type of marketplace. Oftentimes, IABs don't offer, say, a comprehensively compromised account. Rather, they publish whole dumps worth of credentials from hacked websites, which hackers can pay to access with the goal of leveraging those credentials to hack into those victims' other accounts. So, for example, a user of a hacked gaming website might have their Amazon account hacked if they used the same email and password for both. Investigators never publicly confirmed the means by which hackers interested in Colonial Pipeline obtained the information they needed, but they did discover a password of note inside of such a dark web dump, the same one used for a Colonial Pipeline VPN account. When they needed to connect with Colonial's IT network from a remote location, employees went through a virtual private network. Having end-to-end encryption for their traffic added a layer of security to prevent prying eyes. But it couldn't prevent hackers accessing the network once they'd obtained the login information necessary to puppet an inactive but still valid former employee's account. You might figure that an unused account in a sensitive network would be deleted, or that, At least, it would be protected by default in any number of other ways to prevent misuse. And indeed, months after the fact, a colonial CEO told a U.S. Senate committee how the account in question had, quote, a complicated password. I want to be clear on that. It was not a colonial 123 type password, end quote. That didn't matter in the end, as the hackers had a copy of the password in clear text. Even at this point, they still could have been slowed down or outright stopped. However, it's um, you know things like you know multi-factor authentication and things that would have made a compromised password less impactful uh, weren't actually you know present on that particular bit of infrastructure set. All of us have heard it before: don't reuse passwords, turn on multi-factor authentication. Well, as if ever there was an argument in favor of those annoying reminders, it was this. As Senator Rob Portman reflected at the time, this one unprotected password had precipitated, quote, potentially the most substantial and damaging attack on U.S. critical infrastructure ever. The governors of Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida declared states of emergency. In major cities, gas stations began to run dry en masse. In Charlotte, North Carolina, more than one out of every three stations. In Atlanta, half. In Norfolk, Virginia, pumps were totally depleted at 60% of providers citywide. There's no gas and people are getting frustrated, one college student told the New York Times. People are getting into shouting matches. Prices jumped, but that wasn't anybody's primary concern. 
Across the entire east coast and southwest, lines extending dozens of cars deep swerved for blocks past each station that still had any supply left over. Drivers, after filling their tanks, hoarded extra gas by pumping it into canisters. Some stations limited how much customers could purchase. Meanwhile, airlines began to grapple with upcoming shortages. American Airlines added extra stops along its routes for refueling. Southwest flew in reserves to major cities. Other transport industries could only wait and see if their businesses, and the millions of people and goods they moved every day, would come to a standstill. On May 7, 2021, Colonial Pipeline had shut down its entire infrastructure. It would remain down for days thereafter. How much damage had been done already? Could it be reversed? And how quickly could America get moving again? In large part, the answers to those questions came down to exactly what part of Colonial's network attackers managed to get into. At industrial organizations, like nuclear facilities, power stations, or oil pipelines, there exist two distinct yet intertwined kinds of networks. The information technology, or IT network, includes those kinds of technologies we're most familiar with. Laptops, email, Wi-Fi routers, and so on. The OT, or Operational Technology Network, covers more serious machinery. Generators, reactors, pumps, and the machines that control those machines. In news reports, many speculated that cyber attackers had managed to breach Colonial Pipeline's OT systems the part of the network where machines can be shut down, tampered with, or even blown up. This was not the case. Why then did Colonial have to shut down at all? While the innermost technical details of the breach weren't publicized, we have a detailed sense of how those responsible would have carried it out, based on all of the many attacks they'd executed before it. The group, known as Darkseid, was hardly a new entrant to the world of large-scale cybercrime. Yeah, so Darkseid were pretty, were quite prolific. The group had emerged less than a year prior, yet already it had compromised more than 60 organizations across more than 15 countries, spanning the legal, financial, manufacturing, professional services, retail, technology, and power industries, including some major international corporations. Successful as the outcomes, however, its tools and tactics weren't particularly unique in any respect. Darkside operated as a ransom-as-a-serviceware provider, working with a network of smaller hacking outfits, subscribers, which, in exchange for its ransomware, an easy-to-use administration panel, and other related services, carried out most of the attacks. The network of Darkside hacking groups tended to begin their breaches by phishing credentials and often gaining remote access into networks via VPNs, as they did in this case, or RDP, Remote Desktop Protocol. From here, they would utilize a series of mostly open-source and commercial tools, or native Windows functions, to perform lateral movement and evasion, establishing persistence, and connect targeted machines with command and control servers. These included such go-to programs as Cobalt Strike and Plink, NetScan, PSExec, PC Hunter, and the AnyDesk remote monitoring and management platform. The ultimate aim in each case was to copy large troves of sensitive data, 
then lock up the originals, forcing companies to the negotiating table in order to both regain access to what they had frozen and prevent the copies of it from leaking onto the dark web. At the end, if a target paid up, subscribers would hand Darkseid a cut from the spoils, reportedly around 25% for most ransoms and 10% for especially large hauls. This, it seems, was what happened to Colonial Pipeline. Through quiet, lateral movement and persistence, the group had accessed many of its IT systems. The company then chose to shut down their OT systems as well, despite no breach there, seemingly out of an abundance of caution. In their shoes, that's a hugely, there's a lot of gravity involved in that decision, obviously, but I think in their position from a safety standpoint, I'd probably do the same thing. Because if you've got, uh, you know, if you've got a threat actor and you've got malware loose bouncing around a particular part of your environment, and then adjacent to that, you've got this massive you know, gas pipeline, um, it's probably better to err on the side of, of safe rather than sorry. Safe rather than sorry in more ways than one. On the day of the shutdown, Colonial also ceded to the attacker's demands, handing them a whopping $4.4 million payment in Bitcoin. Only two or three ransom payments have ever eclipsed such an amount in the years before or since. Though most of their targets were regular companies, Darkseid wasn't totally novice to organizations like Colonial Pipeline. Just earlier that same year, it executed attacks against two Brazilian electrical utilities, forcing temporary service interruptions. This time, though, it was clear that they had gone in way over their heads. They popped their head out a little bit too far, um, and the response that, that resulted was pretty dramatic. Because the effects of the attack were so unprecedented, the response was as well. So what happens, you know, as a downstream consequence of that is you're activating, you know, the intelligence and the law enforcement agencies outside of the US. So, you know, the Five Eyes gets involved, like, you know, ASD and AFP from my home country start to, you know, look at ways that they could potentially pitch in and, and figure out how to <clears throat> how to resolve the initial issue, but also how to prevent it from happening down down under in Australia, for example. Um, yeah, the more of that you get applied to this hack that you've just committed as a bad guy, the more likely you are to get caught. Shortly after gas feeding half the country's population came to a stop, the full weight of the U.S. government and its partners came down to aid Colonial Pipeline and defeat its attackers. The top minds in American cybersecurity were called to the case, from the NSA to CISA, the FBI, and Mandiant. On May 9th, the same day the Biden administration announced an emergency declaration to address the issue, analysts identified Darkseid as a probable culprit. By May 11th, it was confirmed. For this brief moment in time, Darkseid was the most important name in news on two halves of the globe. So even after winning $4.4 million, the group didn't seem to be celebrating. We are apolitical, they wrote in a post on May the 10th, after the Biden administration and certain news outlets reported on certain Russian links to the group, quote, We do not participate in geopolitics, do not need to tie us with a defined government and look for other motives. Our goal is to make money and not creating problems with society. From today, we introduce moderation and check each company that our partners want to encrypt to avoid social consequences in the future. End quote. While Darkseid felt the pressure of international scrutiny, in the U.S., the pressure was on the government to do something about them. 
And so, even after Colonial Pipeline resumed normal operation on May 12th, law enforcement remained unsatisfied. America wanted payback, and they chose to exact it by taking away what they knew the attackers cared about most. The thing with, you know, this idea of basically blockchain analysis and, and being able to, um, you know, the, the reality of, of cryptocurrency and blockchain is that it's, it's, not, it's not anonymous. Ever since the advent of cryptocurrencies, hackers have used them to launder ransom payments from their victims on the grounds that it's difficult to trace and its users are anonymous. But this isn't entirely so. The blockchain leaks enough forensic data where, with the right tools and tricks, you can reverse engineer a great deal of data. It started to ramp up as an actual solution and an actual industry you know, at, the, uh, at the beginning of COVID because there was obviously a lot of ransomware activity affecting healthcare around that point in time. This became a, a pretty important way to stop that stuff and, and keep you know, the trains on the tracks when it came to um, supporting the pandemic and, and, and the people who were impacted by that. With the tools and methods refined during early COVID, though publicly undisclosed, the U.S. Department of Justice began clawing back the Bitcoin paid out to DarkSide for its ransomware attack. On July 7th, one day before a congressional meeting on the subject of the pipeline attack, the DOJ announced that it had clawed back 63.7 Bitcoin, 85% of what the attackers had earned from the job. And that was, generally, the end to the saga. Though, while the events of the pipeline attack are now long behind us, its impact is still felt throughout the cybersecurity world today. The overall impact of that was, was you know, a, a, a general kind of chilling effect through through the criminal ecosystem there was definitely some some kind of turning down of the uh of the heat when it came to ransomware activity off off the back of colonial because everyone's like sort of sitting back and watching what's going to happen next the way the u.s government went after dark side set a new standard that would seep through the entire ransomware ecosystem one of the other groups they actually got basically um put onto the sdn list so they they became a sanctioned entity by the uh, Department of Commerce. In fact, the Department of Commerce has since applied OFAC sanctions to a number of cybercriminal groups, including 11 members of the TrickBot gang and the money launderer behind Ryuk. And you know, what that meant was that anyone who did business with them was in violation of, of OFAC. In the US, if you happen to break that law, then you've got the entire resource of the Department of Commerce and the Department of Treasury basically coming after you at that point in time. In other words, it wasn't simply that these hackers were sanctioned. It's that anyone working with them, like affiliate groups, carrying out attacks with the ransomware, for example, would also be implicated, and equally so, under the scrutiny of U.S. law enforcement. What that did was because you know, the, the sanctioned entity was a service provider to the entire ransomware ecosystem. It kind of threw the entire thing into a bit of a shambles for a period there. Is like everyone's like, oh, well, if we work with these guys, then like we're not the ones that are on this list. But if we work with them and, and America finds out, they're going to come after us. And go after it, they have. Since May 2021, law authorities around the world have accelerated in taking down many of the biggest ransomware groups in operation. In Paris, Europol tracked down and arrested the leader of Ragnar Locker 
and seized the group's infrastructure. In Russia, authorities took out the most prolific group in the world at the time, Revel, and throughout the second half of 2022, the Department of Justice disrupted Hive ransomware attacks, invading and seizing their systems and preventing ransom payments totaling up to $130 million along the way. In a way, that trend really started in mid-May 2021. The day after Colonial Pipeline returned to normal operation, President Biden announced that the U.S. would disrupt Darkseid's ability to operate. The day after that, Darkseid wrote that, quote, due to pressure in the U.S., unquote, it would be shutting its doors. From one of the leading ransomware operations in the world, it had, in only one week's time, lost its payment servers, its blog, and of course, those millions of dollars in Bitcoin. Months later, the U.S. State Department would announce a bounty of up to $10 million for information leading to the identification or location of its leading members. Suffice it to say, we've never heard from Darkseid again. And that concludes episode number 87 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. This story was written by the talented Nathaniel Nelson, narrated by me, Christopher Luft, and produced by the team at Lima Charlie. And a special thank you to Casey Ellis, founder and CTO at BugCrowd, for sharing his expertise and experience. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics or guests, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode. 